right, everyone, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. And that is true. Now, last week, you know, we had such a, it was such a sweet love story, wasn't it? I mean, it was, I don't have to rehash the whole thing, but, you know, just in case you weren't here, and it was, it was such a, a love story, but yet you watched a man that we know his name is Eliezer. It was, I learned that from a previous Genesis passage, that, that Abraham's servant was Eliezer. So if I say that, or if I say a servant, but he was, he was Abraham's prime, most loyal, probably longest servant. And he trusted him explicitly because it said Abraham was old. So what he did was take and ask his servant if he would go to the home of his family, because Isaac was not to have a Canaanite wife. And, and we talked about how that was quite a request. I mean, that's a big responsibility. I mean, Isaac is no kid. He's 40 years old. And, and Abraham was so adamant about, you can't take him with you, or you have to go and bring her back here. Because Abraham knew that the covenant promise is what, that this Canaan was going to be the land of Israel. And so he didn't want Isaac to go in another area, he had to stay put. So he made, he made this huge request to Eliezer. And, and we talked about 900 miles. It was 900 miles. It wasn't just a little day's journey. 900 miles. And I thought, boy, this is going to take forever for him to go that far. But then we saw that he took 10 large camels. And then, and then, I don't know if you listen to the podcast, but I'll tell you what, I did a study on camels, and I'm so glad I did, because it, it just made so much sense. I mean, I, I learned that a camel can run 40 miles an hour. I learned that they can go 100 miles in the desert without any water. That, they're, that their humps can hold like 20 gallons. That they can go 80 to 120 miles a day. And I thought, well, no, that makes sense. If he took a fresh, if he took 10 camels and he took a fresh one every day, they could do that in a, in a week or so, a little over a week. And so I was so glad that, that I learned that. So I passed that little tidbit. Now you know about camels too. But, but, you know, then he gets to the place, you know, he gets right to where Abraham tells him to go. And then he breaks out into this prayer like, okay, now I'm here, but now I have to I have to pick this right woman. And so he goes to the Lord, how Abraham must have instructed him to ask. You can ask, ask, and, and it will be given to you. And, and so here is this servant who must have learned about God and his almightiness and, and that you can go to him with any request. And so he just bowed down and poured out his heart and said, I'm going to ask you for a request. So I know that she's the one that you want. And so he laid it out there, and even though it was such a, uh, a, mirac- a miraculous request, and, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, it was a practical one. So, I mean, he didn't say, oh, you know, um, somehow send a note from heaven with an arrow that, you know. I mean, he said, this is, you know, this is what I need. Have the, have the girl, um, when I say to her, will you give me a drink? Have her um, 
say, yes, of course, and I will, I will water your camels as well. See, by that request, he would be able to tell her her condition. He could tell her character. Not once did it say, in all may she be drop-dead gorgeous, you know, even though she was, but he didn't know that at the time. But his request was that her heart was right. So there was something just so wonderful from the start of this story last week until, and before he even said amen, here comes Rebecca. And, and it's like, I don't know how many, whether she was alone or whether she was with other women, because this is what women did in the evening. And, and so, but this one seemed to have what, what Eliezer was looking for, that look. And then when he said, can I have a drink? And I'm sure that the look that she gave him when she handed that cup in her hands to him, I'm sure he knew from that look on her face, from that respect and the way she carried herself and just the way she operated. And then, then of course, she came back with, and, and I would be glad to water your camels too. Well, that did it. So, but then he still knew, he still knew though that he had to he had to say, "Well, you know, who's your family? You know, who?" And because that was specific too from Abraham, she had to be from from his family. And sure enough, she, of course, she was. And what is so beautiful about the whole chapter was to watch God working in all of these different people to make something happen. And he. he you know, he did, a, he did his part, but yet all the people involved were doing theirs as well. But that's how a relationship with God works. That's how we know um, how decisions are made and how that there's no other we can turn to who can help us face another day. I mean, that, that song is so true because when we know God does his part, but we have to do ours. You know, that Rebecca was was such a good girl. She loved God. She was she trusted in this whole situation because you know when when Eliezer was talking to her and then she ran home, you just wonder what she was thinking. And and yet, you know, I think she was excited. I think she knew her life was going to change and it was never going to be the same. And and then when Eliezer tells them the story of what Abraham requested and and then how all the pieces fit and how they, even Laban, agreed. And, but then there was that little snag, wasn't there? There was that little snag where when Eliezer got up and he was all packed and ready to go, and okay, we're ready, I'm going to, you know, we're 10 camels, we're off and ready to go back home, 900 miles. And all of a sudden, Laban says, I think, I think we better wait 10 days. I think we better wait 10 days. And Eliezer just really appreciated this because I'm sure he said it in a, in a, a, a good way. I mean, he didn't fly off the handle. I mean, you don't see any anger or, um, or any temper. You don't see any of that. But he was firm. He just said, no, we're heading out because this was all agreed upon. And then they said, well, why don't we ask her? And there again, this is just another one of those details that you knew God was working in hearts. So they said, okay, Rebecca, what, what, do you want to go? Do you want to wait 10 days? What, what? Three words, I will go. I will go. And so uh, there they go, back 900 miles. And then as they approach, as they approach, you know, home, as they approach home, then 
during this time, we know Isaac. Isaac is, well, it says he's in the field meditating. See, he too, I mean, I mean he, is not, he doesn't have anything to say about this. And so, I mean, this is going to be his wife. And so he is meditating. He is surrendering. Rebecca has surrendered. Eliezer has surrendered. You see that beautiful word surrender and submit to God's timetable, God's will. They're all, they're all going to God for the answer. And when you do that, everybody's in agreement. Because, because now you see Isaac who, is, who stands up and Rebecca says, who is that? And I'm sure Eliezer said, that's him. That's him. And she gets off that camel and she puts that veil over her face, which is such a sign of chastity, modesty, submission. Again, such beautiful character. And so... Isaac, what does those last couple of verses say? That he was hurting so much because of the death of his mom. You know, Sarah and Isaac, I'm sure, were very close. And so when Sarah died, I'm sure that that was a big hole in his heart. And how scripture puts it, that, that uh, just that quick, you talk about love at first sight, it can happen, especially when God's in the middle of it. Because... He loved her. He took her into the tent of Sarah. And then those last words were said. And she, she filled that void. She filled that void of, of the loss of Sarah. He loved her. And now that hole was filled. And how God just orchestrated all those beautiful pieces. You know, Abraham is in the right place. He has taught Isaac how to be in the right place. Rebecca is in the right place, right frame of mind, submission to God's will. And we, and we go into today's lesson, in this chapter, and we read, we read these words. That it says, Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. And so... What am I doing? We're in chapter 20, 25. Abraham took another wife. I was going to say, I thought I remembered that this chapter was quite abrupt. Because when I read the first few words of this chapter, I, I almost fell off my chair. Because see, what I just read to you from chapter 24 is Abraham was now old and well advanced in years. See, that's why he sent Eliezer. Because he was too old to make that 900-mile trek. That's why I figured it. So then, now for tonight's lesson, and Abraham took another wife. I'm thinking, way to go. I mean, I mean, you know, he's well advanced in years. He's old and everything, but, you know, it's legitimate. Sarah's gone, and he takes another wife, and her name is Keturah. And then she bears him. This is another thing. I couldn't help but smirk a little bit. Six more sons. Six more sons. And I'm sure you can read those names, and I'm sure I can't pronounce them just right, so I'll just let you read them. But in verse 5, it said, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. Now, these details are in Scripture for a reason. I mean, you know, I might have not read those names because I can't pronounce them well, but I know you read them, and you think, 
what are they in there for anyways? You know, I mean, what's the big deal? But names show that they were real people, that this really happened. This isn't a parable. This isn't a fable. I mean, this story is the truth. And Abraham was old, but he took another wife, and they had six more children, and, and those children had children. And and um, and this is how this is how it goes and so the nation of Israel is is going to go and and um but these this particular group of people I want you to read I want you to read this Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac because Isaac is the covenant promised child he always has been he always will be now we've seen many ups and downs about that seeing what Abraham and Sarah did to try to you know in their waiting period they didn't want to wait so then we see um, Hagar and Ishmael story. Now, you know, so we know that that Hagar and Ishmael, Ishmael was not a part of the promised child, a, a part of the promised covenant. And so, um, and we know that at just the right time, you know, even though it took a little hardship, like Ishmael making fun of Isaac and Sarah then getting upset about that. And so she says to Abraham, you got to get her out of here. You've got to get her out of here, and you've got to get that kid out of here. And it sounded so mean, but yet God said to Abraham, do what Sarah said. Do what Sarah said. They, it's, the, it's time now that Ishmael and Hagar, they, they separate. You can't have Ishmael and Isaac around each other. We have one covenant child, the promise. This is God planned to work through Isaac, not Ishmael. God says, I'll take care of him. I'll make him a great nation. But he is not. He is not part of the promise. And so he has got to get out of here. And so the same thing here. It says, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. Now, what did you think about that? You know, we had talked about Abraham's brother Nahor, and the, the, he had concubines, and we had said that was the first time concubines was mentioned in Scripture. And then I read it here, and yet I just didn't get settled. I just couldn't settle about the fact that Abraham, you know, was now a runaround. You know, that he had a lot of women, and, you know, you know maybe a different woman every night. I mean, I just couldn't, I thought, no, that's not Abraham. So what does it mean? And so I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and, and in all of my, my studying, the general consensus, no matter which one I looked in, it seemed like everybody agreed. Like it felt uneasy like I did. It wasn't, it wasn't concubines like we know, like Solomon, you know, and all those concubines. What, what concubine is referred to here is Keturah and Hagar. Because they were not a part of the promise. See, Abraham, God's promise was to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. And the mess came when they didn't listen and they didn't wait. And so then we see Hagar, who Abraham never married. And then we see Keturah, who Abraham married, but yet was not part of the promise. So the concubines and the children of those two women are... That's what that refers to. At least that's a consensus I found, and I accept that because there's no way that I can think that Abraham at this age or his heart condition makes him a runaround and he's got umpteen women, you know. But I can see the idea of that God intended for the simplicity of Sarah 
and then Isaac, and that's the way he intended it. But somehow, man gets in the way and complicates things. So, because look at it says, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, which you can see. You know, you have Ishmael, now you have the six over here of Keturah, and sent them away. He sent them away, so he took care of them. He wanted to be responsible for them, but he sent them away because he didn't want them apart. And it makes perfect sense. And so he sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. I don't know, I never used to be a map person, but I am enjoying my maps with this study. Just to be able to see the the territory and, and what's Canaan and, and how when when um, Ishmael and Hagar they moved you know by Egypt and they all have their areas and, and you will see that that um, Arabia was where a lot of these were sent and and you know we know that the descendants of Ishmael are the Arabs and we'll get more to that in a minute so altogether Abraham lived 175 years and then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age an old man and full of years and he was gathered to his people his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre. Aren't you glad that we do verse by verse? Because now these, you know, you, you know the story of this particular area. In the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite. The field Abraham but bought from the Hittites. Remember the faith of Abraham when he knew that, that Sarah, you know, he wanted to bury Sarah in just the right place and 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 it was such a sign of his total surrender and faith to God when God says, you know what, all of this land is going to be yours and to your descendants. And really at this point, you know, it's just full of all these Hittites and Philistines and all these, you know, enemies and pagans. And I'm sure it was hard to comprehend how we can get all of them out of there that we can claim this land. Abraham never saw that, but he believed it. So, and it showed by him buying that little piece of property. And, and he wanted a specific, he wanted that cave. He wanted that cave of Machpelah. He wanted it near Mamre, in the field that Ephron owned. How we, we went through how that works. We, we went through how, you know, Ephron, so sure, you can have the land, but that's just part of the barter system. And so then, then um, Abraham comes back and says, what is it worth? He says, well, it's worth 400 shekels of silver. But see, no one ever says, well, I'll, I'll, pay, for, I'll, I'll pay the full price. Because see, then they, they start bartering. But Abraham paid the 400 shekels of silver. Because he wanted that land, and he wanted to be able to pay for it. And this is where... Sarah was buried. But then look, there Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. You know, Abraham is one of those figures of the Old Testament that that we can look to in his life, even though he made some big mistakes, but his his life on a general consensus, God knew when he was looking at Abraham or Nahor, he knew which, which boy to pick. He knew that neither boy was perfect, but he couldn't, he couldn't pick a perfect person. He always, he always works with broken people because that's all he's got. It's, we're all broken people. 
But he knew that Abraham would have a heart that he could mold, that he could work with. And it took decades, just like with us too. He, 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 it takes decades for him to work on us, to get us where he wants us to be. But he can see a potential. He can see that we're moldable. He is, he is spoken of in the New Testament. Abraham is spoken 70 times in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, he's referred to 70 times. And it's only second to Moses, who is referred to 80 times. So we just know his position and his, how God used him in such a mighty way. Okay, now this is the account of Abraham's son's son Ishmael, whom Sarah's maidservant Hagar, the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. And again, I won't read all those names, but it proves, it just proves to us that Ishmael had these sons and these sons had other sons, but, and how God blessed them just exactly the way he told Hagar in the desert, I'll take care of him, I'll make him a great nation, but then it also says that altogether Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt, as you go toward Ashur. So, you know, again, real people, real places. You know, it was really a nice touch, wasn't it, when you, when you read that Isaac and Ishmael buried their dad together, they came together. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think, I, don't, I didn't read any time where they come together again, but for this moment, you know, it is, it is quite beautiful to see those two brothers bury their father. But then look at that last, that last line of, of verse 18. It says, and they lived in hostility toward all their brothers. What did God say to Hagar? God said those exact words to Hagar. I mean, he said they'll be a great nation. You know, they'll, they'll do mighty things. I mean, you know. But he said they will, they will not get along with anybody. They won't even get along with each other. So that was something that we saw chapters back. And then to read it in this after Ishmael's death and the sons are all grown and it's populated and my word, God does what he says. And you know, and we see it today in, in the Arab in the Arab nation. They just don't get along with anybody, not even each other. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. So this is the account of Abraham's the son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Armenian. Okay, now, I just think that Abraham did such a good job of, of probably being honest with Isaac. I'm sure because Isaac and Ishmael, I mean, they, they were, you know, half-brothers for until, until, you know, probably 13, 14 years and when God sent Hagar and Ishmael away. So, you know, I'm sure that Isaac knew the story. I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah said, we jumped the gun. We thought we should help God out and we didn't wait. 
and this is what transpired, the consequences. And so, look what happens here. Look at Abraham became the father of Isaac, and, and, and now for 20 years, for 20 years, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. You know, we, we know that Isaac's 40, he marries Rebecca, and the, the love story is so sweet. It, it's just love at first sight. It's, it, it's just working so perfectly. And yet, you know, I'm sure that they thought that they would have a baby within a year. I bet they did. And I bet when it didn't happen in a year, I bet they started praying. I'm sure they did. And then two years, and then three years, and then four years. And, and again, that big question, why? Isaac knows he's part, he is the covenant promise, and he's got to carry this. And he knows what God promised his father, that he'd have descendants as many as the stars, as many as the sand of the seas. He knows that story. And again, Waits 20 years. So when it says the, that he prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was bearing, the Lord answered his prayer. I want you to know that he didn't just pray one night and all of a sudden God said, oh, I'll just make sure she gets pregnant tomorrow. This has been 20 years. And just when, when God's, see, this is what we have to remember about when we pray it's so easy to think, and I know that, that I hear it all the time when people say, oh, I'm so grateful God answered my prayer. And when they say that, they generally mean that I got what I asked for, that he said yes to my request. And we have got to learn that the, there isn't a prayer that we, that we pray that God turns an ear off to. Every request, he hears us. Every prayer, he listens and answers. The only thing is, he doesn't always say yes, because he knows better. He knows what he wants to accomplish, and he loves us too much to give us our will, our will and our way all the time, because it, it, it isn't right. And he has much to teach us. And we'll never get to why we've been created if he gives us our way all the time. But so often, you know, people, in fact, I have yet to hear somebody say, God answered my prayer. He said no. Now, I know that you, I have to say, I said it for the first time because when I chose to try this, this new treatment, I mean, I just was so sure. I really was. I really thought it was going to work. I thought I was going to be healed. And I, when, it, when it didn't, when it didn't work, uh, there was many things about the new treatment that I, uh, you know, that I've added, and and, and it, it's it's going to help me. But the initial light treatment did not work, and the doctors come together and they have to tell me, "You're just too old. You're just too old, and and it's just been too far gone for too long. Your muscles have been too far gone for too long." So it's not going to happen. And I had to come home and with that, and I had to realize that God answered my prayer because I had been praying. So, but here was, here was the one time that, that I could honestly say that God said no. 
And, you know, I, you can say, well, it doesn't make sense, and, and why not? And he doesn't owe us an explanation. Sometimes when he answers prayer, he says no. And I have seen, though, just like with Abraham, when, he, when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac, when he said, take your son, your only son, the one that you love, and, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. I mean, and he had that knife in his hand. But then God said to him, remember when God said to him, because you obeyed me, because you were willing, all peoples, all people on this earth will be blessed because of you. That's when it dawned on me. That sometimes even though it's, we think it's just between us and the Lord, or me and the Lord, that for me I thought this problem was just my problem, me and the Lord. But how other people, like I found out our own boys were watching how, how I was dealing with this. Never did I even think they were watching that. It was such a good reminder that maybe the Lord uses us in our difficulties and his saying no and how we deal with that no answer. Because even our own children or people around us, that they're going to see how we deal with a no answer. We all know how we deal with the yes answer. But what about a no answer? Or, or in this case too, wait, that's his third way. Because here... God knew it was going to happen. He was just, here's that test again. He was going to test Isaac and Rebecca. Are you going to wait? Because you know it's going to happen. But are you willing to wait for my timing? So like I did last week with camels, I did this week with the word wait. And now, of course I know what the word wait means. But I just thought, okay, I'm going to take that four-letter word, and I'm going to look it up in the dictionary and see what the worldly dictionary, how it defines weight, and this is what it says. Stay where you are. Stay where you are. And then it went on to say, or this is another part of the definition. It's a delay of action until the proper time. And even even the, the everyday dictionary, I thought, I'm glad I looked that up. Wait means stay where you are. And it's a delay of action until the proper time. But then I went and found the biblical answer for wait. And the biblical answer of wait is to hope, to anticipate. Isn't that beautiful? Because we all hate to wait. No one likes to wait. But God has such a plan when he has one, one of his three answers is wait. I want to teach you how to hope. I want to teach you how to anticipate. And then this is how you hope. This is how you anticipate. Because you know that verse that Isaiah wrote, they that wait on the Lord. It makes more sense to me now with the definition of wait. They that wait on the Lord. They that hope in the Lord. They that anticipate for the Lord to work. They that wait on the Lord find that their strength is renewed. When you know God's up to something, he knows exactly why and when and how. And when you get to that point where you can wait because you know that, even though it might not be exactly your answer, you just know he's going to do something. You're hoping, you hope and you anticipate because hope isn't wishful thinking. Hope is 
a sure thing. When we hope in God, it's a sure thing. That's why it's so good to see a worldly definition and then a spiritual, a biblical definition. So what does it take to just wait when it goes against our grain? When we want things now, I wrote down a few things. It takes faith. Well, like I said, it takes that belief that God is up to something and his timing is perfect. It takes faith to believe that. It takes patience. It takes humility. And humility is simply keeping God in his place and keeping you in yours. He's God, I'm not. That's humility. It's also keeping his commandments. It's staying in his word. It's when he commands, it's not a suggestion. He commands it. He knows what's best for us. And the last one I wrote down was, you wait because you know that he will help you endure to the end. So just a word on waiting. So I think that uh, that Abraham had told Isaac and Rebekah the story, and now Abraham is gone, and now they're in the same boat, and this isn't making any sense. And it's 10 years, and then it's 15 years, and then it's 19 years, and then 20 years, and then you read the Lord answered his prayer. See? He answered it. But in his time, and boy, I'm sure he did a lot of teaching in those 20 years. I bet Isaac and Rebecca, this is how he changes us and transforms us by trying to teach us, when are you just going to trust me? So Rebecca becomes pregnant. And the babies, verse 22, the babies jostled each other within her. That had to be something, wasn't it? that the babies jostled each other. So, you know, it was a regular circus going on in there. And she had, she had never been pregnant before, so I'm sure this was, this was quite an unusual experience. But look what she did. It says, she asked the question, because it was so unusual, why is this happening to me? So she's got, you know, she's got the question, which is logical, why? Because maybe she talked to a few of her friends, and they said, oh, we never had that happen before. So she probably, you know, asked, well, why me? Why is this happening to me? So look what she did. See, Isaac and Rebecca are in such a good place right now. She went to inquire of the Lord. But I don't think that she expected to have the answer that she got. So she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. So there's two nations, there are two peoples from within you will be separated. In other words, they're two distinct. In fact, one people will be stronger than the other. And then I'm sure this one was a hard one to accept. And the older will serve the younger, because that's just not heard of. So when the time came, now, I just wish that when God said that to her, I wish she would have just mentally and spiritually remembered that and kept going over those words, you know, because I don't think she did. And I'll explain that to you in a minute. But when the time came for her 
her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. Oh, dear. I don't, I don't think they called the photographer right off the bat. I mean, this child had to be unique, and it reminded me, it brought me back to, you know, our boys were both two months premature. And so, you know, there was not an ounce of fat, fat on them, you know. I mean, they, they just were like little plucked chickens with skin that just hung on them. I mean, but, you know, still. But I remember I was, um, this was with Jason. Chad was in the hospital for only a couple weeks, but Jason was at Butterworth, and he was there for over a month. And so I would go there every day, and I would just never wanted to go home. So after I would go in and, and put the gown on and reach in the incubator and all that, I just didn't want to go home, but I had to get out of there after a certain amount of time. But then I stood by the window, and I would just stand there and, and just look at him. You know, I, I think he's beautiful. I know he looks like a plucked chicken, but he's alive because the doctor said when I delivered him, let her hold him. I doubt if she'll hold him again. I mean, he just was not in good shape. So I'm looking at this little little thing in the incubator just sprawled out, you know, and, and um, I just think he's gorgeous because he's alive. He's breathing. And, and there's this couple that's standing right next to me who have no idea, of course, because, you know, I'm in plain clothes, and, and they have no idea that I'm, I'm one of those babies' mothers, you know? So, you know, they're just up there looking at the, the neonatal babies, you know, looking at them, pointing, and then they get to Jason, and they stopped, and they went, oh, yuck, look at that one. See, they never, never thought, because I'm sure they didn't mean to be cruel, but they never imagined that a mother was standing there. Of course, I was just crushed. But I didn't say anything. I just let it go. But it just made me so much more thankful for that little boy, even though maybe he was, oh, yuck, to someone else, you know. But, but I kind of, that story kind of came to my mind when I read about red and hairy, you know. I mean, some children just don't have it when they're born, you know. They're just, you know, they're, they're maybe deformed a little bit or their head's a little different. Maybe they're not always the cutest babies, you know. But I'm sure that Rebecca, you know, thought he was adorable. But anyway, it says, then they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. Isn't that something? I mean, that detail, I'm sure whoever delivered these twins said, we saw something we've never seen before. I mean, you, you've got one, one baby holding on the heel of the first baby, I mean, that had been something. So it, it warranted in Scripture because you can almost picture that God is working. You know, it's almost like little baby Jacob was trying to say, no, no, I'm supposed to be first. You know, but yet it didn't happen that way. And I, I had a couple people ask me that. It would have been so much simpler if God just didn't, if, if Jacob was going to be in the line and not Esau, why didn't Jacob just be born first? You know, we don't know. God's ways aren't our ways. But boy, he, you know that God is up to something here. And he is. Now, it says then, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to him. And the boys grew up. The boys grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, 
while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Now I want to stop here a minute and say, you know, so often, you know, all we can picture is this red, hairy hunter. And then we have a tendency to look at Jacob thinking, what a sissy. And I want you to know that, that you know, just because they're distinctly different, I, it's called personality. And I think that's what God uses to, to make us like snowflakes, that there's not one of us the same. It makes us unique. It helps us accomplish what his plan for us is. So the fact that Esau happens to love the outdoors. But Jacob, I kind of look at it in today's terms, he liked computers. You know, he liked being inside. And there is nothing wrong with that. Because God can, can use differences. I'm going to tell you a little, little story what happened this past Sunday. I was listening to Jed's sermon in the afternoon, like I always do. And he started his sermon. He is, it was on the in Mark, and uh, he was he's going through the book of Mark, and it was the story of that demon possessed man. And it is it is a, a chapter that that Chad, you know, he's he's just got such a he's got such a mind, a complicated mind that just can dig deep, and and he. He loved that chapter, and he wrote a paper on it, and, and, he, and he titled that paper, and he told me what the name of that paper was, and I didn't understand one word of it. In fact, it was, it was such a profound paper that he was asked to deliver it in Italy to a bunch of, of smart people that would just love it. And so, I mean, that was an honor, you know? But then when he came home from that experience and that, he, he was telling this, this story. He says, my brother called me and said, um, yeah, I'm going to be uh, talking to a group of young people, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be um, talking about what you wrote. And um, I wondered if you would come and listen to me. And, and Chad, he was so honest about it. He said, my first thought was, listen? You want me to listen to you when I am the one that knows it? You know, he was, he, he said, you know, I'm sure he was embarrassed to even say that. But, you know, that's the natural tendencies. Jason, you want me to listen to you when I'm the expert on this chapter? But he said, being the good brother that I am, I said, okay, and he said, I went and listened. And he said, Jason started this, this study, and he got to the part where it said the man cut himself. And then Jason stopped. And he just waited, and then he said, has anybody in here cut themselves? And Chad says, I watched one young person after another start to, to confess and to open up. And he said, I will never forget that. I will never forget that. And I know that my brother can preach that sermon a whole lot better than I can. 
And you know, there is nothing wrong with Chad and Jason being so different, even in their preaching styles. There's nothing wrong with it. God can use differences. That's not the problem here. But this is where this is where it got sticky. This is where you knew it was not going to end up well. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, so yeah, he has a lot in common with his older, older, you know, the older twin by probably a minute. But he, he had more in common with Esau. And, and of course, Rebecca probably had more in common with Jacob. And, but this is the sad thing. It's that Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And so we know what this means. It is, we're talking favoritism. And God doesn't ever show favoritism. And so we are never to show favoritism. And so my question is, this is, this, I thought, what happened here? You know, this whole chapter so far, how many times haven't I said, Isaac and Rebecca are in such a good place? They're in such a good place with the Lord. The Lord has tested them now 20 years, and they just kept praying, they kept praying, they kept praying, and then God answered. You didn't see them, you know, try to hurry and fix something, get ahead of God. Nope, they waited, and I, they were in such a good place. So what happened between verses 26 and 27? What happened during those years when the boys grew up? Could it be that, that Rebecca, that's why I wanted you, when God said to Rebecca that you have two nations, two different peoples, one will be stronger than the other, the younger will rule over the older. You just wish that she would have kept going over that and over that because if she would have just kept believing that, if she would have just, when the boys were growing up, she'd say, you'll never believe what God told me when you two were just jostling like crazy inside of me. This is what God said. I don't understand why Jacob, you were, you, why Esau, you're going to serve Jacob. I think if she would have just kept, kept telling them that, this is what God planned. This is what we have to trust and believe. He doesn't require us to understand. Let's just go along with what God says. But instead, between verses 26 and 27, when those boys were crying, you know what could have happened? After praying for, for a baby for 20 years, could it be after God answered that you kind of slack off? That you kind of like, oh, I got what I want. Life's good. Everything's fine. Life's going easy. Oh, that, believe it or not, as much as we love that, it's, it's dangerous. It's so dangerous because we have a tendency then to start spiritually cruising. And maybe, you know, maybe they keep their, their rituals, they keep doing things on the Sabbath or what they're supposed well, I don't know if they had Sabbath yet then, of course, but, but I'm sure, you know, their love for God, you know, they did their, their maybe their prayer time at certain times. They, they followed all that right. But life was easy. The boys were growing. All was well. And I think we, we, we run amok when things go too good for too long. I don't know for sure, but I would dare say because something happened between those two verses. Because if they were walking with the Lord, they would have never 
started picking favorites, even though both boys were so extremely different. They would have had better instruction instead of picking favorites. Because look what happened. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, now did you notice, because we're going to read the rest of this story later, you know, and we all know what happens. But in this particular, with the, with the birthright thing, he doesn't need his mother's help for this. He figured this one all on his own. And you know that Jacob and Esau are not in good places could be because of parental influence. Maybe, maybe you know, they weren't instructed in the way they should be because maybe Isaac and Rebecca were not in the right place. And let's face it, we know that influence is powerful. So Isaac and, and Jacob were both very self-centered at this point. Very self-centered. Isaac, you know, it's going to be obvious all he cares about is himself and the now. I'm going to be satisfied now. Jacob, you can see that he has got a conniving, manipulative mind. And he, all of a sudden, because see, he knows the birthright. He knows what that entails. The birthright is, is both material and spiritual blessing. I mean, whoever gets the birthright is going to inherit double portion of the inheritance. So they're going to get more materialistically. But spiritually, they also get the title of head of the home. And Jacob, I bet Jacob knows that he is going to be the one that's going to be the covenant promise, that's going to continue the line. And so, you know, he knows that that birthright's got to be his. And so he is going to find an opportunity to get it. And so it, it's kind of like, huh, now, now you're sounding like your grandpa and grandma. You know, you're trying to jump ahead of God because actually this birthright, I mean, it wasn't Esau's. It wasn't Esau's to, to, to sell and it wasn't Jacob's to buy because it really wasn't Esau's. It was going to be Jacob's. You know what the problem was? Neither one of them waited for God to work it out. God would have worked it out. Because Jacob would have had the birthright. But here again, they didn't wait. At least Jacob didn't wait. And Esau could have cared less about it at the time. So you can see with both boys, even though they were so different in their thought process, bottom line was they both were self-centered. So Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. See, look at the in parentheses there. That is why he was also called Edom. So his other name was Edom. And we know, if you ever look it up, the Edomites become one of the worst enemies of Israel. And so even though there are questions you think, you know, why? In fact, in fact, um, Charles Spurgeon was asked a question about this because in Malachi chapter 1, there is a verse that the Lord Malachi is questioning about God's love. And, and God says, it's Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. You know, we all have heard that. And 
Spurgeon was asked by somebody saying, I just don't feel, I don't feel right about that. I don't understand that God hates. But again, we have to remember that God's definition of hate is different than ours. Because remember, Jesus himself said, and you must hate your father and mother and, and brothers and sisters. It's not, you, it means separate yourself. Because, you know, when, when, when God said that Esau, I have hated, it's like I've got to separate from him because I see his heart and never, he was never going to, he had the same chances, he was told the same, the same stories, but he chose to harden his heart. But when Spurgeon was asked that, he answered it by this, by this. He said, I can't understand why God would say he hated Esau. That is really not my main difficulty. I have real trouble understanding how God could love Jacob. And that, that makes sense because Jacob was not in a good place here. He was not doing it for God's sake. The birthright, that wasn't his big thing for God. It was all for him. He was, he was very sneaky and manipulative. And so Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Can't you just imagine when Esau came in and said, give me some of that stew, I'm famished. And then all of a sudden, light bulb flashed. Oh, this is what I've been looking for. This is the opportunity that I've been waiting that I can get this. Can't you just see those wheels just going? Because look, he says, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, look, I'm about to die. Isn't that a little dramatic, Esau? That's a little dramatic. I mean, you know, you can just tell. All he cares about is, you know what, I'm hungry now, and I want it now, and I smell it now, and so give it to me now. That's all he cares about. Never thinking how important that birthright really is. So he says, look, I'm about to do it anyway. What good is the birthright? But Jacob said, you know, he knows, he knows Esau. So he comes back with stronger words like, okay, swear to me. Swear to me first. So Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil soup. Oh, I bet, I bet Jacob stood there and watched, thinking, I got him. He ate and drank. And then he got up and left, like, no big deal. So Esau despised his birthright. You know, uh, it's quite a chapter, I know it is, but I thought to myself, you know, this is no different than what we're battling in our world today. What is the reason why our world is in such a disarray, why it's in such a mess, and why is because people don't value what God says. They don't value what his word has promised us and what we have because of him. They don't value, they don't think twice about it. I think there's a lot of people sitting in churches. I think there's a lot of Christians who, who really don't see the importance of their Bible that much. I mean, they'll open it maybe at mealtime or maybe at church or whatever, but they don't see when we lift our Bible saying this is God's word, every word is true, and it's all I, we, I mean, we have a passion for this. 
It's like God is speaking to us here. I mean, he is training us what we haven't learned since we started the book of Genesis in September. I am mind-boggled by it. But there's so many that haven't, haven't learned. They don't, they don't take value in that instruction. And unfortunately, because, you know, we're a people, a human nature that just so gravitates to self and, you know, self-indulgence and, and, you know, what I want. And, you know, I put words like cheap entertainment or... or um, momentary popularity or self-pleasures, what people are, are putting more emphasis on. I went to Ephesians 1, and I thought, this, what a different world. But most of all, if, if pagans don't want to hear the gospel, if they don't want to believe the gospel, if they don't want to believe John, John 3.16, think it's them, that God so loved them that he gave Jesus, that if they would just believe, their life could be changed. If they don't want to believe that, I guess it's like what it's like the twenty second chapter of Revelation. It's like Jesus said to John, "Write this down. If they want to be vile, let them stay vile." It's like you know what? I don't know what else I can do. I only I only came. I only put sixty six you know books together. I, I named half of them the a little over half the Old Testament, but it was all about the promise of a Savior. And then Jesus came and lived 33 years and fulfilled exactly what, what needed to be done. Blood had to be shed. And he didn't take his equality as God, something that he could grasp. He was willing to come and be a human so blood could erase sin. You know. And you hear, you hear that gospel story. And he, if people want to believe it, it's like at the end, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible... God says, I don't know what else I could do. I don't know what else I can say. If they want to be vile, let them be vile. And see, God can see a heart. He can see whether it's just going to keep saying no, or he can see a heart that with enough work on, they'll be pliable. But I'm telling you, he wants... He wants his children to put value where, where we need to put value. And we can't get caught in the trap of, of the world's standards and the world's things that we buy into our successes based on what we've achieved or what we've got. We've got to see our value the way Paul put it in Ephesians 1 when he starts his letter. He says, when was the last time you stopped and you realized that you have been blessed with every blessing from the heavenly realms. So I listed, I put it in my own language, but this is Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I just said the first one, that we have every spiritual blessing. We have been chosen. We have been adopted into God's family. We have been accepted by the Father because and through Jesus we have redemption from our sin. We have been bought back. We have true and complete and total forgiveness of our sins. He remembers them no more. We have, we have the riches of God's grace. He lavishes us every day with grace. His faithfulness is brand new every morning. We have the ability through the power of God's spirit to have revelation and knowledge 
to understand his word, to understand the gospel, to understand what the gospel can do for us. We get it. We have an eternal inheritance. There's so much more to life than this. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I come back to receive you unto myself, that where I'm him, there you will be also. You can wake up every morning knowing that. I have a guarantee. I have a guarantee no one or nothing can take God's spirit from me. Then on the day that I came to the cross of Christ and accepted Christ as my Savior, I realized I was nothing. I was lost without him. But on that day of the most humility, the, I, I call it the most humbling day of my life because I had to take a look at me for who I really was. And I was a good church kid. Didn't cause my folks any trouble. But all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the day, the second that that happened, when, that, when, I, when I realized that, I was given a guarantee of God's spirit inside of me. I don't have to do this alone. Now, I'm telling you, I have to decide, okay, what, what, what am I going to concentrate on? Well, I'm going to trade one for the other because I can't do both. Am I going to put value on what I just said from Ephesians 1 and live my life accordingly? Or, and I'm so grateful that we know that God worked on Jacob and there's going to be a Bethel and there's going to be a Peniel. I mean, there's going to be a salvation. There's going to be a wrestling. You know, we're going to see all that later because God knew that he could work with Jacob. But I'm telling you, God knew who to choose. He knew who to choose between Abraham and Nahor, even though they were both broken men. But he knew who to choose between Esau and Jacob, too. So, just something to think about. It's a great lesson. Heavenly Father, you did it again. Father Benny, again, I bring these songs up because it's true. The only way we're going to really understand the way you want us to live our life is by grab a hole in our gentle shepherd to really understand that psalm that David wrote, that the Lord is my shepherd and in him I have everything I need. There's no other we can turn to who can help us find our way. There is no one that will lead us better. There is no one that will feed us with strength better and teach us how to wait and Father, we know that you've done your part and we need to take time to be holy. Spend much time in secret. But that one line in that song that keeps coming back to me, that by my conduct, people can see. So by my conduct, will they see you? Father, we know that in our white spaces, we can be so on fire for you. We can be on our walk with you. And life happens. And maybe, maybe good life happens and for a long period of time. And we get a little complacent. And oh, yes, God is so good. And then, then you've got to really grab us around the neck and, and just really kind of put us right in front of the mirror again and say, see what happens when you do it your way. It just never ends well. So, Father, yes, again, familiar stories. But I think you really helped us see 
tonight. It's okay to be different. You made us unique. But Lord, the main, the main thing has to be our heart condition and how we can be so right and then how quickly we can falter if we're not careful. So Father, help us to see how much we need our Bibles, how much we love them, how much we need to be in them, how we need to listen and obey. So Father, again, thank you for this opportunity tonight. We give you all praise and glory for giving us truth. And we pray this all, that it falls on good soil, good fertile soil, the soil of our heart, that much will happen because of tonight. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, who makes life worth living. Amen.